Hello! I know I'm interrupting, but before this podcast, 3CR has an important public service announcement. Currently, we are running our annual Radiothon, where we ask for your donations to keep community broadcasting alive. We rely on your support to keep media alternative. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And with that done, I hope you enjoy your show. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response we to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. Do you think the ABC's left wing? Don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, folks. This is Annie and uh, Marcus for Solidarity Breakfast. G'day, Marcus. How are you? Yeah, g'day, Annie. Yeah, good thanks. And yeah, morning to all the listeners out there. Yeah, I went off to the uh, Green Left Weekly's uh, comedy night last night at uh, Brunswick Town Hall. It was uh, lots of fun, I'll have to say, and we'll share some of the uh, booty from that event next week. So that was fun. What was the uh, theme or what was the debate taking place? Uh, don't worry. Don't, something like, uh, don't worry, there's always a planet B. Okay. And so there were people arguing that um, uh, we needn't worry because there's always a backstop uh, to uh, climate change. If we destroy this planet, then so be it. We'll have somewhere else to go. Yeah, we go. can go somewhere else and trash yeah, another planet, planet. Like we'll trash this one. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so there were people who were for, for and against. Interestingly enough, and like there was the one woman who was uh, – a, uh, a rich bitch who basically <laughs> said that um, that's okay if you're nice to me, you can come on my spaceship and do my cooking because I don't like cooking. <laughs> so which uh, which side won the debate? Um, no. Oh, okay. No, we don't have a planet B. We really do need to pull our socks up. But <laughs> that was that was um, probably uh, – Bound to happen. But there was lots of laughs and uh, uh, lots of uh, good um, meaty comedy. So, yeah, it was worth recording. And uh, so, as I said, I'll share some of the uh, diamonds uh, next week. Yeah. But this week, I went to – so I'm a bit stupid because I drank some red wine and (laughs) and listened to stuff, had not slept very much and uh, (laughs) – And, but I didn't do what you said, Mark. You didn't kick any doors in, did you, to get in? No, no. <laughs> my, lucky, my luggage wasn't <laughs> locked in my room. <laughs> um, but I did go down to uh, Footscray, uh, Maribyrnong Council, Footscray Town Hall on Tuesday night where there was a huge and quite um, angry meeting by uh, – Residents about uh, the um, uh, proposed council proposed uh, Vic- Melbourne Victory uh, private soccer academy uh, mooted for uh, land on uh, Footscray Park. People are livid. So I've got a, an extended report on that. So this is what happened when we uh, first arrived at five thirty. Council into locking the doors. 
<laughs> I'm from uh, 3CR. Can you tell me what's going on here? Gemma, would you I'll like... go for it, Sharon. Oh, well, local community, we're all come here tonight. Yeah, we're outside to, Footscray Town Hall. Maribyrnong Council. We're here to basically express our objection to the Footscray Park Master Plan that's being presented to us. Our original 2011 Master Plan for the Western Lawn Area has got approval for sports fields, general recreational space and an off-leash dog area which enables a diversity of uses by a multitude of people all at once. Council has proposed to change that into a singular use for soccer only. They've said if the community don't want this, it won't happen. Those are the words of our CEO. So we've been writing to council to reject that. To date, they've received 90% rejection to this plan. We're here today again to reinforce that message to them. We've submitted some questions to them in relation to the master plan, which we intended to sit in on at the council meeting. To which is on tonight. That is correct. To have some of our answers actually uh, sorry, questions actually answered, which is effectively how does their proposed plan, which ch is changing our park to a singular use, for use for kids only during peak use periods at the exclusion of the whole adult demographic and including chi children that don't play soccer or can't afford to pay the $1,000 membership fee is it per private? season is it to private? a private soccer club to Melbourne Victory, right? That how, how, where is the majority benefit in that? There isn't, but we wanted to hear that and council's explanation. And unfortunately, council has decided to shut us out. They've locked the doors and they've put a notice on the door stating that they will not be discussing the master plan. And they there's a police presence here. There is a police presence. They are inside also with council members. How long have you known about this? Because I see you've got t-shirts, Save a Footscray Park, so you've obviously been yes, working look, on I this. I actually became aware of this in March this year. Um, I found out just through sheer luck through an advertisement by Melbourne Victory stating that they were building a software academy in my park. Um, hadn't heard anything about it, went online, saw that there was some form of a community consultation that happened in March by council, but it was closed. So. <laughs> Then turned around anyway and basically started reaching out to the community saying, do you know anything about this? What's going on? So we all started contacting council and they said, oh, yes, yes, no, actually we're going to have a community consultation, even though it said it had been done in the March. So I think to appease us, they had two consultations, one at Footscray Park and one here at council chambers. We asked to know about the proposal. We were told that council couldn't discuss the actual proposal from Melbourne Victory because there was technically no lease. Um, so we asked to discuss what was in the Memorandum of Understanding. They said that was confidential. Um, so we were literally basically told that there's three soccer fields and it's going to be wonderful. And we said, well, who's going to build the soccer fields? Are you? Uh, no, Melbourne Victory will. Okay, who's going to get to use these soccer fields in peak use periods? Is it for the community? Well, no, they're looking at going to be leased to Melbourne Victory, so they're going to have an exclusive lease, so they'll get priority use in all peak use periods. So we're effectively going to lose our parkland. Have you spoken to your councillors? I haven't personally, but there have been several people here. Um, I have spoken with the councillors. You, you live in this area and you're expecting that they'll talk to you about this? 
Uh, yes, I've spoken to Simon Crawford, who's a Greens councillor in the Yarraville ward where I live, and um, I've spoken to him for over 45 minutes about this proposal, and I'm really disgusted to see that I've been locked out of my own local council when I wanted to talk to my council about this proposal, which is going to, um, you know, devastate me and many other um, dog owners that use Footscray Park uh, every day to walk our dogs and um, get some exercise. It's just so. What did, what did your councillors have to say to you? Uh, well, Simon Crawford said he hadn't made his mind up about the um, proposal, but he thought it was a pretty good proposal and that, um, you know, he felt that the uh, decision-making process was all going fine, that the consultation was fine, even though, even when I mentioned to him that only two signs had been put up in Footscray Park to announce the entire consultation process, he didn't th seem to think there was a problem with that. Um, I raised my concerns about the environmental issues raised by having a big synthetic turf on a natural flood plane and, and Simon didn't seem to think that was a problem either. So I'm really disappointed with what my councillors have had to say to me so far and I'm extremely disappointed that I haven't had a chance to talk to them about my concerns tonight. Thanks. This is your place, is it? Yeah, yeah. The Maribyrnong River, the whole length of it needs to be protected, um, including Footscray Park. It's it's between two really beautiful places. Oh, it's beautiful itself, but you've got Newell's paddock, which is just lovely. You've got so much bird life all up and down the river. This river needs to be protected. It's the floodlight's not going to be um, a minor, uh, you know, point in terms of the bird life who and the nocturnal biodiversity there. It's going to be a nightmare for them. Are you surprised that your council has locked you out? Uh, well, coming here at 5.30 and wanting to submit a question to the council meeting, um, I just hope that they take it when the doors open at 6 o'clock. Uh, I don't understand why they have the doors locked in a public building when there's a council meeting on at 6.30. From 3CR, why have you come out today? Uh, just to um, protest against the, the loss of possible loss of um, Green Park. When did you hear about it? Uh, last week. Oh, so uh, in March apparently they had public consultation and you were unaware of that? Unaware of it completely. Yeah. Now they've uh, got police presence and they've locked the door. Yes. <laughs> What's your reaction? They're, take, they're taking us seriously then, I guess. <laughs> and yes, they did. They moved around the front. And as I said, this is an extended uh, uh, report on this particular event because the reason for why it's important to me, Marcus, is because it's about public land being used and handed over, holus bolus, to private interests, just like public housing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, they, these people just insinuate themselves in amongst the power brokers, or they are the power brokers, and they are basically fleecing the public of, the, of our assets. So uh, the speeches, let's hear the speeches. Over to you, Gemma. Thank you, Jeremy. All right, are we all in? Um, hi, everyone. My name's Gemma. I'm one of the people who's organising the community campaign to save Footscray Park. And I want to very genuinely start tonight by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land that we're on right now and the land that we're trying to save from being handed over to a greedy corporation the Wurundjeri people, the Woiwurrung people and the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. So I think you all know why we're here tonight. We're here to stop these people in here 
our council from handing over an icon of Footscray, a heritage-listed park that we all use and love, to a company. So why do we oppose it? At the moment, we can use that park for whatever we want, whenever we want to, regardless of who we are or how much money we have. The plan to hand it over to Melbourne Victory will see one of our valuable and loved community assets handed over to the second richest sports team in Australia for a for-profit academy. What a disgrace. We're here for the silent majority of people who don't want to join a sports team for exercise, who want to just go for a walk, walk their dog, uh, walk amongst the birds and the magpies of the park. to kick a soccer ball, to throw a rugby ball, to do whatever they want. And this plan will see our park permanently changed to only be able to be used for soccer. Are we anti-soccer? No. No. Melbourne Victory can have their academy, but they can do what most private companies have to do when they want to make an investment. They can buy a piece of land. They're not having our park. I mean, I want you all to keep in mind that Melbourne Victory are owned by a man who's reportedly worth, just himself, $60 million. The other reason we're here is for the environment. The plan will see a big stadium built, fences built and a hybrid synthetic turf built in what is currently a natural, unique area in an increasingly busy suburb. This council just keeps allowing developers to build huge developments. We have people flooding in and I think we've been pretty bloody reasonable about that to date. But now they're trying to take the limited public space that we have, which is now being shared by more and more people, and it's not on. Now let's talk about the consultation. We've all been round the front. We've seen that on a night that it's meant to be open to the public, that we're meant to be able to come in here and talk to our elected representatives that they've locked us out. Has anyone seen that before? Not only have they locked us out, but they've got police in there, as if we're a bunch of threatening criminals. We're here to exercise our democratic rights, Maribyrnong Council. And what else is happening? We've got a consultation. We've got council assuring us, going on radio. We've got Stephen Wall, who seems to run this place in a way that's pretty anti-democratic for someone who's never been elected. We've got him going on radio and saying, oh, if the people of the West don't want this, it won't happen. To that we say, rubbish. You've already made up your mind. We don't want this. We don't want this. And one of the questions we want to ask tonight is, what is it that this council would have to see before they agreed that the people don't want this? They've admitted that 90% of the correspondence they've got has been opposed. And yet, 
And yet, Melbourne Victory is coming out and publicly announcing their new location for their new academy. In October last year, before the consultation even opened, they put a video on their website announcing this. And yet council tell us that they're genuinely listening to us. Rubbish. Um, happily, I was on 774 today, ABC Radio. Um, Raf Epstein said he received a heap of texts about this. All of them one way, against the proposal. What do you want to see, Council? We're trying to tell you what we want, and that is we want to keep our park. We don't want this private soccer academy. Yeah. But let's get real, everyone. This is part of a bigger problem in the city of Maribyrnong. We're standing here only a few months after these people decided to privatise our aged care workers. We no longer have public aged care workers. And it cost them $2.4 million in payouts and they fought those workers to the federal court to avoid paying it. It's a complete disgrace. Meanwhile, we stand in solidarity with the traders of Footscray who are locked in a very difficult battle against these people who want to bring in paid parking, saying that they think it will help the traders. There's no paid parking at High Point and there's none in Yarraville, but the people of Footscray need to cop something different, apparently. And, and, and what we're doing now is we're trying to show them that we are unhappy. We're unhappy about the park and we're unhappy about the way they do things. We're unhappy at the fact that they don't listen to us. And if we think that this is gonna end with a rally, it's not. What we've gotta do next is something bigger. First, we need to go out and talk to more of the community about this proposal. We've got until the 16th of August to get as many submissions together as we possibly can. And we're going to be calling on you all to help us door knock in the area and take submissions from people who don't know how to do it. The other thing we genuinely need to be working towards is getting them out of office. This, if they continue to do things against the will of the people, they can only expect to be voted out. And to date, there hasn't been a strong opposition, but we want to change that. Mark our words, we are actively going to field candidates for the next election next year and put up an opposition. Thanks, Gemma. Um, for anyone who doesn't know me, my name's Jeremy. I'm a local resident. I live just on Stirling Street, only a block away from this proposed development. Friends, neighbours, members of the community, thank you everyone for braving this miserable weather to send a strong message to Maribyrnong Council. We're telling them tonight we will not accept having a massive chunk of our public park being handed over to a private entity which happens to be one of the most profitable sports teams in the country. It is not in the interests of the wider community and we will not allow it to happen. From the very start, the Council's consultation process has been rushed and dodgy. 
As Gemma mentioned, they've been forced to extend the submissions deadline because of a community outcry. But as far back as October 2018, the Council had already told the Melbourne Victory soccer team that this was a done deal. This, this is a reality check for the Council. This is not a done deal. When submissions close on August 16, the Council would do well to listen to the wishes of the vast majority of the community. They have said that they will make a decision on August the 27th, but we should not consider their deadline fixed. Rubber stamping this project and physically building it are two very different things. If they decide to ram this through, we will not back down. We will fight this inappropriate development all the way through to the very end. People power has successfully stopped much bigger developments before. When I was in high school, I was lucky enough to be involved in the grassroots community campaign against the Liberal State Government's East-West Tunnel in 2013 and 2014. That proposed toll road would not have solved any of Melbourne's congestion problems, but it would have been a multi-billion dollar gift to some of the biggest corporations in Australia. We said, this is a waste of money. What we need is better public transport in all of Melbourne's suburbs, including Footscray. Hundreds of people joined us in linking arms and blockading the work sites. Our community picket stopped the tunnel. It gave us a free tram zone in the Melbourne CBD and it resulted in some long overdue, although still wo woefully insufficient public transport upgrades. We should not rule out tactics like that if the council refuses to back down. We can definitely look at running candidates on a people's ticket to vote this council out. But, but the council elections are not, uh, are not until 15 months. If we leave it until then, the soccer pitches may already be under construction. Saving our park will rely on mobilising the collective strength of our entire community. We need the active involvement of as many as you as possible in this campaign. We have to build it and keep up the pressure until this plan is dead in the water. If you have the capacity to get involved in any way at all, please sign up to the SaveFootscrayPark at gmail.com email list. Clearly, there are many people tonight who want to take this on. We should have a broad community meeting to bring everyone together and look at the next steps in the campaign. I think we should consider every future Maribyrnong Council meeting a potential target for protest action. This campaign, save our, save our park, 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 save our park. This campaign, this campaign is about much more than one park. It's about who gets to decide what our communities look like. The residents who use these amenities or powerful vested interests who stand to make money from our public space. As Gemma pointed out, over 100 years ago, 
The residents of Footscray came together and fought tooth and nail for a public park to serve the community. If they had given up when the local council said no, we would not have Footscray Park today. I want to wrap up with a couple of chants before I hand it over to Gemma. I just want to draw everyone's attention. Um, we've been joined um, by Councillor Zakharov, who's our mayor, who's behind us, and we thank him for coming and being with the community. But what I want to do is I want you all to tell him what we think of this proposal. So after me, hey, Council, have a heart. Let us keep Footscray Park. Hey, Council, have a heart. Let us keep Footscray Park. park privatised. Why do we care who owns our park? We care because under the scheme that's going to see it privatised, we won't be able to use it. And council can put whatever spin they want on the notion that we're getting some upgraded public facility. But the reality is that Melbourne Victory have said that they want to be able to use it up to 40 hours per week. And can anyone take a wild stab at when they might want to use it? At exactly the same times that we want to use it. The people who currently own the park. They want to use our park after school, 4pm to 9pm in the evenings. Are we meant to come out and walk our dogs and kick our soccer balls at 10.30 at night? No. They want to use our park on the weekends, which is exactly when we want to use it. And that's why we are opposed, because we understand that there will be fees to be a part of the academy, because this is a private, for-profit company. And what we understand from comparative programs is that those fees will be about $1,000 a season. So what we're going to be able to see is that a beautiful and loved public asset that's currently available to anyone, no matter how rich or how poor, will only be available to the rich. Our public park. Shame, council, shame. 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 Shame, Council, shame! Shame, Council, shame! Shame, Council, shame! Hi everyone, my name's Sam, I live in Seddon and I'm the proud owner of an 11-year-old cattle dog called Tibbet who frequently uses the dog park to uh, play and have some exercise and I wanted to um, come here tonight to talk um, as somebody who owns a dog because at the moment there really isn't that many places to walk your dog in the Greater Footscray area and I'm really upset to um, find out that my council has decided that uh, what I want to do with my park, which is, you know, walk the dog and, and exercise and have a lovely time, is uh, not important and that, um, you know, my, my community asset can just be sold off to uh, a private company. So I think that's really disgraceful. I think it's... Yeah. 
I think it's particularly disgraceful that when I got here at 5.30 today, because I'd been told by um, Sarah Carter, one of the councillors, that I'd be able to speak to somebody before the meeting, that I was locked out. I can't believe that they're locking... I'm all for, um, you know, women and young people having excellent facilities and I'm all for the Melbourne Victory by purchasing a piece of land, perhaps in West Footscray or Tottenham, you know, somewhere, the a former industrial site and actually building an academy and actually having a, a beautiful, vibrant community where we can all get along and do interesting things. But at the moment, all I'm hearing is that our dog park is going to be sold off and I'm going to have nowhere to walk my dog and I just think that's a real disgrace and I, I'm just asking uh, the Maribyrnong Council to reconsider their decision and show us that this is not a sham consultation because that's increasingly what everybody thinks. We think it's a done deal and that you think we're stupid and we're going to put up with this and we're not. We're not going to put up with it anymore. Thank you. everyone apparently the doors have been unlocked so we won't keep you all here much longer we will be able to proceed into the meeting and um, people are able to table questions at the meeting today but somewhat unsurprisingly council are already indicating that they probably won't answer them yes well it was uh, more than that uh, Marcus and I'll just remind listeners you're on solidarity breakfast and we're down at uh, an event that happened, a demo, a rally, really, that happened on Tuesday night in the dark, in the rain, around this proposed plan to uh, uh, put a private uh, soccer academy on uh, uh, public land down at uh, Footscray Park. And you can hear that uh, the residents who turned up were extremely angry. Yeah, I hope, I hope the uh, local councils, the elected representatives... Uh took full note of the locals' anger. I mean... Vote them the out. councils are there to represent the views of locals, and uh, here it seems, yeah, the councils are representing the views of, basically, yeah, corporations. I mean, Melbourne Victory, a yeah, corporation, an elite sporting club, backed by billionaire owners, it sounds, and uh, they think they can go into the western suburbs, into Footscray, and, and take the locals' park. Um, so, I mean, the locals in Footscray have got formals this time 30 years ago when they the locals rallied passed a hat around and um, saved their football club, the Western Bulldogs, when the AF, uh, the VFL, as it was back then, uh, tried to, yeah, basically exterminate them. And, yeah, the locals rallied and saved them then, and it, it sounds like they're going to save their park. Well, do you, want, do you want to hear what happened when they actually went into the foyer? Because that was pretty hilarious, I'll have to say. I, I just, it was just such a classic event.
wasting our time. Can we get time? Excuse me, can we let this gentleman talk? How much room is there? There's only room for about five to be allowed in and of course there's hundreds of people out here in the foyer.
because I love sport. I've also got a dog. I've grown up using Footscray Park and I learned to play cricket there. I learned to play football there. I learned to play soccer there. I also did little athletics. It's where I went to go and do my training because I couldn't get to Albert Park, which is where the Saturday competitions were. Footscray Park has been a part of my life since I was, well, down this height. And I want that retained for every single future generation that comes after me. Yeah. Woo! Yeah. Yeah. All right, who's next? Woo! Hi everyone, my name's Amy. I'm Woo. born and raised right down the road from the Witten in Footscray proper. Well, West Footscray, you know, they keep changing the names. Um, <laughs> and I have tried to live near my parents, in my neighbourhood, with my friends who I grew up next to, who I went to primary school with, as rents keep going up, and I still want to live in my neighbourhood in the inner west. And I have a beautiful Staffy Cross. <laughs> and her name is Nala, and we love to walk her. And we have, and, and even as you live in the city, in this crowded place, this place is getting more and more crowded as they build more and more apartments, which somehow still don't make it affordable to live here. Yeah. <laughs> and they're building, and, and our industry is, and our industries are changing and our neighborhood is changing, but there's still, and there's gonna be more and more people living on that corner as that Kinnears, as that old tire factory goes. And I just, even amongst all that stress and all that busyness, that view when you walk up on that hill takes your breath away. But it still puts the air back in your lungs, and that's why I love Footscray Park. Company for no cost. The precious floodplains, what they will be leasing. Less space as our population's increasing. The parks for the people, not for profit, thank you. Locals pay rent, but Melbourne victory won't have to. The second richest sports team in the country. Why should they get public land for free? 
Every soccer fields are what they want to introduce The western lawn would mainly be for private use A beautiful view is what they're gonna spoil A hybrid toxic turf won't be good for the soil They want to build ten floodlight towers there Now it's a place only a select few can share Council said the land was disused, that isn't fair They're the ones that left it in a state of disrepair The grounds don't get used, we see through the lies Cause how can a view be underutilized? Some kids don't play sport and go for the serenity So they'll be excluded from this great amenity Losing the space for many will be devastating Where will the open space be for future generations? Council should live up to people's expectations And protect one of Footscray's only open spaces News of reckon the park is hard to hear It's been around for over a hundred years It was built by the people of Footscray Don't take the natural beauty of it away This land should never be up for grabs One of the biggest Edwardian parks this country has So to mess it up would be twisted Footscray Park is heritage listed They want to give a corporate sports team tenancy Having no social conscience is not right ethically Council member Stephen Wall don't leave us saddened You said if people don't want this it won't happen Out here in the city of Maribyrnong There is already so much sport going on How will people feel when the stunning view is gone? Go to safefootscrapepark.com They've even got a song. Amazing, eh? That's uh, Footscray Park Report. I don't think the council knows what they've uh, they've started. Yeah, well, uh, where is the democracy? I mean, these councils have been elected by the residents and all of a the sudden they think they don't have to face the residents. Or, yeah, I mean, where is the democracy? Uh, they ought to be on notice at the local council elections in Victoria on next year. And, yeah, they ought to be worried. It sounds like uh, a few of those councillors would have gone home with their uh, underpants full. <laughs> Anyway, we um, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Marcus, and um, and I went down to another. It was a little snap event outside the um, Department of Transport. It's called it's Number One Spring Street. Did you know that's what was in Number One Spring Street? Anyway, that's where Vic Vic Roads hangs out, <laughs> and uh, there were a collection of people out the front uh, on. Um, Last week, and it was about the Dap Rawong um, sacred trees. And uh, there's been a um, you've probably caught up with the fact that uh, the the uh, the government's basically said that uh, nothing to see here, and that big roads can continue, but uh, the camps aren't gone. And so I got an explanation about what's going on, and a call for people to uh, go and support the uh, people who uh, have been there for a considerable amount of time. Can you tell us about what's going on here? We're outside the uh, transport department. Yeah, so um, we're outside the transport department, which is also where Vic Roads um, is housed, and we're trying to speak to someone who um, either um, is helping to make decisions about the Western Highway um, or if we could pass a message to anybody. And we've been, at, we've been standing here since 10 o'clock and we plan to stay here until the end of 
business day um, just to try to speak to someone. The building manager has come out and said that they're not willing to speak to us. They're not willing to come out here and we're not allowed to go up there. They've actually blocked off the front entrance um, so that no staff can go in either. So we've been effective um, in that way. But yeah, it's very frustrating that um, the government department and, and Vic Roads, who's supposed to act in the public interest, won't talk to the public. Can you tell us, uh, tell our listeners what's been going on in the last few days? Um, so, well, go back longer. Tell us, tell us about what's actually going on. Yeah, so um, Vic Roads is planning to um, build, a, build a highway, um, or um, alter the highway that's currently there, um, which will um, go through a sacred Japurong land, um, including destroying um, sacred birthing trees and scarred trees um, in that area. Um, these trees, some of the trees have been here for hundreds of years. One tree's been there for 800 years, um, and it's yeah, absolutely, absolutely ridiculous. Now, I know that um, they would say, oh, we talked to Koori Heritage and they said it was all okay to do that and all the rest of it. But uh, local people are saying that this is completely incorrect. Yeah, the, there's a whole mob of Japurong people who are there protecting their land and are saying that this is not what they want at all and they didn't agree to this. And there's been effectively little to no communication, actual um, genuine consultation with Japurong people. To, to talk to them about um, to talk to them about their land and trying to respect what the land means to them. And the government put out an announcement saying that uh, they've looked into it and now the police can go in. That's right, isn't it? Sorry, could you repeat that? That uh, the uh, government's looked into it and uh, under all consideration that uh, due consideration that uh, now really the police can go in. You know, there's nothing to to see here. That, that's what I understand. They don't, still don't have an eviction notice, so they can't um, evict people. But I, I understand that they're trying to get this eviction notice. But yeah, this is um, this is the, the latest. What we've heard is what you've you've said, and um, lots of cops and machinery have been seen around the area and coming near the camps and entering camps and things. So um, yeah, it's it's really gravely concerning. There's urgent urgent need for people to be up at camp um, so that we have a mass so that police can't evict people and they just can't come in and shove people to the side and start destroying these ancient beautiful trees. So what does the camp look like so that people know uh, is, are they across the road or is it, uh, what's it look like? Yeah so there's um, three camps kind of set up um, next to three of the trees um, the, there's top camp which is the first camp that people can enter um, and that is along the western highway about gosh I don't know how far out of I think it's about 40 kilometres. 40 kilometres out of Ararat. And, and yeah. you'll see it as you're travelling along I've on seen the left-hand that written. side. Yeah, exactly. Um, that you, you'll be able to see the big flag and a big Japurong embassy sign and lots of people there. And that's the first place you can go to. The other, There's two other campsites which are a bit more hidden. So um, they're, they're just off the main road more so. So, so, so if people want to come, what's the protocol? What should they be doing? Yeah. Um, so, so first heading to top camp and... Um, and letting people know that you're there and then seeing um, what's needed or where your best um, sit, um, where, the, where they need numbers at top, bottom or top, middle or family, bottom camp. Um, I think going in um, ready to serve in whatever way is best. Um, that might be cooking, that might be cleaning, that might be just standing ground, that might be preparing different things. Um, but I think taking direction, everyone there goes, 
we should be going there with, there with an understanding that the Japarong people um, are there protecting their country and um, if you're, yeah, if, um, if you're not Indigenous, if you're not Japarong, then listening to what they want us to do. Yeah, is there a contact number or a contact site that people should be going to? Yeah, there's a few Facebook pages. There's the Japarong um, Heritage Protection Embassy and there's also a carpooling page, um, a Facebook carpooling page. So that's probably the, the easiest way. There's also a website. Um, I don't know what the website's called, but if you type in Japarong Embassy into Google, it should come Do you want up. to spell that? Yeah, sure. Um, D-J-A-P-W-A-R-R-U-N-G. Thanks very much. No worries. Thank you. And you were saying that you've been there a couple of times to the camp, but you went last November. Yeah, so I went last November just to, to experience it, to see it, to understand it, to spend some time there, which was great because I got to speak to Zelenak um, just one-to-one. At the moment, you can't speak to Zelenak one-to-one because he's just, you know, it's so busy, it's so crazy. But back then in November, my boy, my little boy and I were the only people there with Zelenak and his partner. And I actually got to talk to him one-on-one and understand what it was all about, what was going on, why the significance, what it meant to him. And um, it was fascinating. And then I went back again um, a few months ago when there was um, that, um, there was a standoff with the police a few months ago. And I was at that when we managed to hold off the police and the police left. And that was a very... uh, a very eye-opening experience and it was amazing to see the amount of uh, support and solidarity amongst amongst um, the whole Melbourne community that had come up to support Zalanak. It was great. Yeah, yeah. Um, and as you were saying, I mean, I, I find it a bit curious that it's quite clear that this camp has been there for about a year or longer and that the Big Roads finds it so difficult to actually see the significance of these sites and change their plan what's a what's a big deal yeah i don't know why it is such a big deal because uh, yeah zelenak and his camp have been there for at least a year that i know of and obviously these these sites are so critically significant culturally significant to the jabberal group and i don't know why we can't respect that we have we protect the the most you know um the most lame little historic shacks that are significant to to the European civilization, things that are like 100 years old or even less, little sh- falling down shacks that we think are, are really important. And these are 800-year-old birthing trees that are obviously clearly have been, to- we're being told repeatedly and that are hugely significant. And they can't be replaced. They can't be replaced. They are, and they're significant not just to that to individuals that have experienced them. They're 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 significant to that entire culture. Is it part of songlines? Look, I don't know. I don't I don't understand the songlines, and it's something I would like to understand. I'd like to go back and talk to Zalanak about songlines, or I'd like to understand what the songlines are about. But I understand that they are significant for whatever. They're worth, and you know, there's we have cultural monuments all around the world that we respect, and we don't necessarily understand the ins and outs of why they are um, significant to those groups of people, to those cultures. But we take it in good faith that there's all these kind of monuments that are that are hugely significant, and we need to whether we understand 
the, the significance of the birthing trees or not, we've been told categorically by these people that these are hugely significant and we need to respect that. Into, into the space and that I just had a greater sympathy, sensitivity and awareness of what it all means. It was, it was amazing. And I just, now I want everyone to have a smoking ceremony. I don't know, it's like cast some kind of magic fairy dust. Yeah. That you just sort of understand. Oh, and also the fact that he welcomed you like that when you, at, when you came out of the blue. Well, yes, he did. He welcomed me out of the blue. I just rolled up with my little kid out of the middle of nowhere and he, and he beautifully accommodated us and he even said he had that a spare caravan and he put me in the caravan we had tents and he said you can stay in the caravan and he was he was gorgeous and he took my little boy who was four years old five years old at that time took him off collecting firewood showed him different parts of the land explained different parts of the land to him and now my little boy is just so in love with Zalanak keeps wanting to go back <laughs> when are we going to go back and see Zalanak he was like he's sorry dude he's really busy right now but um yeah my little boy thinks Zelenak's the bomb. <laughs> You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. A weak solidarity bricky team listener when the government attacked those calling for an increase in the dole as opponents of aspiration. Indeed, the minister for get a job, you lazy bastards, Michaela Kosh, the workers, whose compassion is legend, said Socialist Party members talking about Newstart, that's the euphemistic title for the dole, talking about Newstart, were not talking about opportunities for getting people into work. So we must not talk about, must not mention the dole, let alone suggest it should be increased to a slightly higher level of poverty. And the socialists, she said, they're, they're such irresponsible people, had opposed every exciting job creation government policy going back to the little bald-headed bloke who used to be big supremo back in those dark ages, inspired work for the dole policy which overcomes the little problem of caring employers inadvertently underpaying workers because there's nothing to underpay. They don't have to pay them anything. And the big economic guru, Josh Prydev Icebergs, asserted the government would not sacrifice the chimera that is a sometime in the future never-never surplus to boost the dole to that slightly higher level of poverty. We are quite satisfied with the current level of poverty, Josh confirmed. Uh, yes, Josh, just what is this surplus you keep trying to achieve? It's money the government collects which we don't spend. Uh, and why does the government collect this money? Uh, well, to provide government surpluses, uh, sorry, sorry, uh, services, like, say, the dole. Yes, yes, that's so, although I'm sure you know we must not mention that word. When you use that word, you're not talking about opportunities for getting people into work. Yes, yes, look, I'm sorry, but therefore the surplus is money raised for services like, say, that which we can't mention, but not spent on that which we can't mention. That question indicates you have no concept of how the economy works and ignorance you share with the socialists. In fairness to the socialists, the accusation is false. They are not calling for an increase in that which we can't mention. They just want a review, although I suppose even that would be not talking about opportunities for getting people into work. 
uh, yes, what is your policy anyway? We are socialist supremo and would be big supremo, Anthony Albinuzzi. In the interests of the working people we represent, we support the government 100%. Although we wonder why the government bothers to work its guts out to get people into work when workers are so bloody ungrateful. Take these lawless workers on a Brisbane luxury apartment site, 267 apartments, being developed by Tim Gurner. Tim Gurner get the union, one of the annual Troubadour Aussie rich listers, in other words, a highly respected great contributor to society, and what thanks does he get? The workers walked off just because the builder Icon, Icon the workers, tore down union flags, evil union flags, but everyone knows evil union flags are quite understandably illegal. And dozens of workers charged by the Smash the Construction Union's jackboots authority for raising union flags face $42,000 fines each. Fines were recently increased from 14 grand to 42 grand because, as we know, evil union and lazy, avaricious worker lawlessness is out of control. And the workers are also a bit upset about the actions of the company safety officer photographing them, leaving us to ask what did they have to hide. Despite this blatant disregard for the law, Imagine what the world would come to if workers could just fly an evil union flag when they felt like it. Anarchy! Despite how gracious, how generous of Michaela and Josh and Tim Gurner get the union and icon the workers to devote their lives to talking about creating opportunities for getting people into work when they are rewarded with such ingratitude. And what better incentive to getting into work, what better created opportunity than poverty, starvation, homelessness. An unlivable doll is an... Oh, sorry, sorry, I said it, sorry. An unlivable, that which we can't mention, is therefore an act of kindness. Good news for workers locally. Riches of the rich, um, Lister Tim, is also developer of the St. Moritz site overlooking the bay. And even more good news to cheer up our morning. Tim has already pre-sold $500 million of luxury apartments so we can but hope the greedy unions don't try to rip him off. Or worse, fly evil union flags on the site. And while the jackboots con mission must, on behalf of all of us, fine lawless workers trillions, this new report shows the con mission controlling caring employers has nothing to control. And if there is a slight inadvertent problem, like ripping off billions, they can reach a friendly agreement over a few cognacs down at their favourite club. Thankfully, the government is attempting to rein in the worker lawlessness by introducing a sensible, balanced bill allowing them and caring employers to deregister evil unions and sack evil union bosses. Well, not just the government and caring employers. The bill allows almost anyone who has a beef with any union and or evil union boss to have the union deregistered and the evil union boss tossed onto the... Oops, oops, almost said it. Onto that which we can't mention. To show how unions are not just unreasonable here, but let's be honest, they're unreasonable everywhere. That's why governments in some progressive countries ban them altogether and jail or even assassinate those forming or joining them, showing how serious they see the problem. The impediment to freedom of capital. Anyway, this mob called the International Centre for Trade Union Rights 
based in Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country, interfering in our affairs, claims the bill breaches international conventions on labour rights by restricting workers' freedom of association and collective bargaining even when they're not involved in any wrongdoing. They even object to you and I, listener. Well, the bill says... A person with a sufficient interest, that could be anyone, a commendable example of real democracy, can apply to the court for a wide range of orders including disqualifying a union officer, deregistering a union, altering its eligibility rules, restricting use of its funds or property, object to union amalgamations regardless of union members' wishes, all sensible measures to address this rampant lawlessness. Yet this mob in London objects to those clauses, to those rights of people rightfully aggrieved at criminality. And it gets worse. They claim, how's this for paranoia? It is an invitation to union busters and anti-union forces. Well, of course it is. That's its intention. Are they opposed to fighting crime? Well, obviously, because they go on to say... The Ensuring Integrity Bill appears cynically designed to encourage deeply damaging interference in trade union activities. The legislation spells a serious threat to trade union democracy. Ignoring the fact our government loves and upholds democracy. Why, as many as almost 30% of the people elected it, including many workers, particularly in Her Most Gracious Majesty's land up north, it now, need, now needs to disempower. And the international union mob exposed its class warfare nonsense bias by claiming there is no equivalent for this in corporate law. But these unreliable credentials were exposed by the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review, which informed us it is, quote, a union-funded think tank. Unlike reliable sources like the Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs, which the Capitalist Review knows doesn't need to be described as a corporate-funded think tank tank because there's nothing wrong or sinister with that and good news in a recent 13 page fundraising letter to members the institute boasted its generation liberty program already employing 13 people as campus coordinators and aiming to have paid workers on every troublewazi campus within three years and communicate directly with young people generally about freedom see many people uh, see, many young people, it's Supremo John Roscam wrote, have a favourable opinion of socialism, but never hear the benefits of capitalism and free markets, which is what they mean by freedom. And let's hope evil unions, until they're already registered, don't adopt the idea and plant paid workers in our universities, although... Oh, no, we should be safer. I'm sure the Capitalist Review and the other foul facts, no longer foul facts outlets, and Lord Rupert of Wapping would protect us by making sure we know what a socialist commie threat to democracy and education that would be. See, former train killer Jackie Lumpen says she'll vote to smash the unions and workers because there's one union official she doesn't like. Great little thinker, Jackie. And a giant test for Anthony Albanese and the socialists of their clever strategy of agreeing with the government 100% on everything just to highlight their chasmic differences. Continuing.
following this morning's theme, the government also continues its relentless campaign to get evil unions removed from all that workers' lovely, lovely super money. Despite setbacks like the Hermos Gracious Majesty's Finance Commission backfiring and exposing the very funds the government wants to get their hands on, all that lovely, lovely, but their campaign was delivered ammunition by this report about the corporate watchdog sitting down in the club and forcing the corporate lot to buy it a cognac and a feed a lobster. It listed the 10 top funds by returns and the 10 bottom funds by. And the evil union funds were prominent. Yes, in the top 10, only nine were union funds. And in the bottom 10, only nine were retail, bank and financial institution funds. Any wonder the government knows it must get unions out of the way. And yet there are myopic people who still claim the campaign is ideological. And now finally, speaking of Her Most Gracious, Gracious Majesty's home country, Boris. Sorry, what was that? Time's up. Oh, well, thank goodness we covered him. Good morning. <laughs> well, there you go, Kevin. He, like last week when he said that uh, they didn't overpay. <laughs> it, you know, that business about George Columbaris, you know, and how difficult it is to be able to uh, pay your proper rates. But as Kevin pointed out last week, they never seem to overpay their workers. Yeah, outrageous. He's copped a, a much a $200,000 fine for uh, ripping $8.5 million off from his workers. The CFMEU in the last 10 years have been fined $17 million for protecting workers, uh, going on site to make sure workers go home safe and alive and uh, yeah 17 million dollars and yeah. Uh, yeah i mean if you wouldn't if you didn't see that the uh, game was rigged you'd have to have rocks in your head but anyway we're moving right along on solidarity breakfast and we've got uh, dr noah Brazil on the line g'day noah how are you i'm well thanks annie how are you good and you've just come back from japan i have just come back from japan and so one of the things i just uh, in sort of uh um related to what you're talking about one of the things that i've read before about Japan was that there was a culture, it wasn't a law, but a culture, a sort of norm, that the highest paid person in a company, the lowest per- paid person in the company, had some relationship. If a person wanted to raise a salary, that raised a salary the person. Oh, we, we're, we're losing you. It's, uh, oh. yeah. Um, I, we'll try again. Say that again. So, uh, one of the things I've read about Japan is that there's a culture of um, having a relationship between the bottom paid person in the company and the top paid person. Yes. So their salaries are uh, relative, and if the person at the top or the people at the top want to raise their salaries, they have to raise the salary of the people at the bottom. Hi. Now, um, and you know, so so the, this sort of keeps uh, the I don't know what we the it's not egalitarian. I wouldn't say that, but it keeps some sort of um, uh, relative I, I, balance. Relative balance. Balance is a great word between it. And you can sort of see it. I mean, I've travelled a fair bit in the last few years, mainly to Europe for work, for conferences and things. So not a, not a fair bit, but a couple of times a year. And one of the things I've really noticed, like Sydney, is the number of people living are rough. Um, you know, the homelessness in places like London and Paris um, and elsewhere is really noticeable. Yeah. Um, and it's very cold there. Very cold. Um, you know, there's sort of people... Um, begging and trying to make money through, you know, uh, forms of charity, you know, also on the rise in many places. I did not notice that in Japan at, at all. And I got to see a fair bit of Tokyo and Kyoto in particular, two of their largest cities. 
Um, I did not see one person living a rough. Now, that might just be that they moved them out of the city. I, I don't know. Um, but... Oh, well, I do know, I have seen a couple of programs about how elderly people, for example, have set up uh, almost communities in underground car parks and things like that. Right. They do have it, but they uh, it is happening in Japan. Yeah. It's just that they appear to uh, deal with homelessness in the same orderly fashion as yeah. they deal with other parts of uh, yeah. their society. I mean, it's a hugely, like, you can see how hyper-capitalistic it is. You know, the consumer society is everywhere, you know, and, you know, those images of Tokyo with the lights and the, you know, the um, branding of Sanyo and all that, it's all around. So I'm not trying to romanticise it as some sort of, you know, um, socialist paradise by any means. (laughs) But um, there is a sense that despite that, the solidarity, the sense of community and collective um, is much stronger. Maybe what you're saying is that they have more awareness of their traditional uh, way, uh, their culture is, uh, they're connected and continue to to relay the vocabulary of their traditional culture. Yeah, and I think also there's a sense of responsibility to other people. You know, um, small things, but things that are really evidently missing in, um, a lot of Anglo-American societies, it's things like respect and politeness, and you yeah. see it everywhere. You know, like you know, we we um, noticed it a lot uh, and talked about it a lot. How people were really respectful and um, you know, there was a real sense of you know, um, you know, people didn't push in. Um, you know, and, and you know, there was the, it, it felt different. The sort of um, sort of I, I use the word. Um, but the sort of um, aggressiveness of a lot of places, um, you know, <clears throat> wasn't evident there. Now, I'm not saying it's not there, but it did seem a little bit different in the sense that... Um, but it must be a cultural imperative. They must. It must be something that has been grown through time that allows a lot of people to live in a small yeah. area of land. <laughs> yeah, possibly. I think also, I mean, one of the things we've had in Western especially in Anglo-American um, societies for the last 30 or 40 years, is this idea of um, sort of almost social Darwinism and the, the yeah. survival of the fittest and individualism and the sort of rugged individual as the hero. Um, and it goes on and on and on continually. Yeah, yeah. The propaganda is continual. Yeah, and I think that sort of moulds a particular way of thinking about yourself in relation to other people. Yeah, the sports um, star, the Olympics, the yeah. you know the amount of money that is put into the great individual is just sickening, to tell you the truth. I mean, the other thing is that because of all the the outcome of World War Two, of course, um, Japan doesn't have a militaristic culture. Now, it's a very militaristic, it was a very martial society. It was ruled by samurai for, you know, 700 years. Um, but... As a result of World War II, they don't have a military culture anymore. And we are so militarised now. Um, you know, we've taken on this, you know, sport, military, you know, society. Anzac Day is a celebration of, of the military. Someone was saying, yeah. another academic was saying uh, at one of the ICAN, uh, IPAN uh, meetings is that he'd just come back from Japan and he, he was really surprised at how many... Uh, nationalistic emblems, we like our flags. How many flags we fly, yeah, and yeah. Uh, he said the same thing that you just said. 
Yeah. So it, yeah, it's. I just I did notice the contrast uh, in many in many places in many ways. And you know, I'm not saying they're all better, but uh, you know, for you know, for example, we know it's a very hierarchical society. We know that it's very patriarchal. Uh, you know, so there are, uh, and that was evident as well. So it's actually quite classist too, because I remember when I was a kid at school, uh, yeah. doing some history and being absolutely amazed, agog, uh, that the idea that uh, uh, Japanese people were basic had no, they were sla- they were slave people. They didn't, uh, they were owned by yeah. uh, particular households. Right. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah, that's sort of, that's you know, like it's not, it's not see, a. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. There's, there's things you don't see when you're a tourist. You know, so, <laughs> you know, uh, so I mean, there must be some elements of that whole sort of process running yeah, through yeah. the place. And Absolutely. no, you wouldn't see it as as a tourist. Yeah. Um, and also, we know that, um, and there's been a lot of reporting of how, especially South Korean and other um, sort of uh, low lower paid workers are treated very poorly in Japan so there is that aspect well, yeah, but well. you, you can't become a Japanese citizen yeah so, you can yeah, you no. can have been born there you could be several generations there uh, from Korea as a worker but you can never become a Japanese citizen yeah so I mean there are lots of aspects of it that um, you know remain really problematic on one level you know there were things that I really um, appreciated about Japan that you know, well, it's like it's like all cultures. Uh, yeah. It's great to uh, be able to size up your own against what's yeah. a norm in another place. I mean, one of the things that I found, I'm reading the Japanese news daily, which is the, Eng- the English edition, obviously. Um, <laughs> uh, one of the real debates in Japan at the moment is over whether the um, next monarch can be a woman. Ah. Uh, next head of state because they're a constitutional monarchy, um, uh, but the, there's the, the sort of constitution or the, the laws around um, inherit, inheritance of the monarchy state in the past have always been interpreted that it's the eldest male. Yeah. Um, the current ruler doesn't have a male heir; he does have a female heir, mm. um, and so there is uh, or a female. He doesn't have a son; he has a daughter. So. Um, there's a lot of talk at the moment about whether and, and attempts to reinterpret the traditional laws around um, around uh, the, the inheritance of. Uh, to, to well, you know, if they can talk themselves out of being god kings, I guess they they can decide that a woman can be yeah. <laughs> head of reading, state. Yeah, reading the news, there's a lot, and you know, I read it pre- most mornings. I think there is a groundswell of support amongst people in Japan. Again, this, this may not this might not be representative of the wider population. What I was reading, but it does seem like at least amongst that uh, um, sort of academic elites, uh, journalist class, there is a lot of support for the next monarch being a queen. And that, I think that would or empress, um, you know, that's a huge cultural shift as well. So. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how that plays out. Over that is interesting. Uh, I think they also had the same thing around. Um, mind you, I, I I see royals as diversions. Um, oh, of course, yeah, yeah. yeah. But there are culture. I mean, that 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 would be you know things like you know um, the uh, gendered nature of Japanese society would be. Uh, yes, I see your point. Know, would play out in this uh, whole debate. There was a lot. I mean, some of the writers were saying some very um, sexist things when they were writing in support of 
male. I mean, one of the articles I read said that you know, um, male. The reason you need a um, uh, king, uh, emperor, a male, is that because it demonstrates how the man is the head of the household, and that's part of Japanese society. You know, so I, you know, the, you know, that breaking that down would be a huge step for. Yeah, you know, no, I see your point. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I guess yeah. that's that is actually the role that um, these uh, icons. Might, uh, in oh, fact, yeah. we should move on to the subject that, uh, fascinating as this is, we were actually going to ask you a little bit about what your perspective was on what's going on in the Sudan. Okay, well, it's it's taken a very different turn this week. I don't know if you read the news mm-hmm. on it, but uh, you know the the. Um, the government has used a um... Are you still there? Oh, that was pretty exciting. We'll uh, come back in two shakes of a lamb's tail. He's obviously disappeared from the face of the earth. So we'll put on a little... Um... Hello? Yeah, are you there? Yes, You're back. Yes. Could you say that again? What, did, what, what has they done? That just disa- you just disappeared. Are you back? Hello, hello. Hold on, I'll put something on and we'll get back to you in two shakes of a lamb's tail. Uh, Let's see, we'll find something. From every corner of the world, they came from all around. When in 1851 they struck gold upon the ground Every voyage was a long one Months upon the stormy sea Some to seek their fortune Others escaping slavery What they found on the gold fields Was ruled by brutish thugs Discrimination and taxation Mixed with swinging billy clubs The gold was getting scarcer And cops were getting worse The diggers burned their licenses and vowed to end this curse. They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross. They'd stand together and break the license laws. From 20 different nations they gathered here as one in Ballarat beneath the Southern Sun. And we're back with Noah. Tell us what you were going to say, Noah. I was really well, interested to find out what the government's done. Well, the- this week uh, there was an attempted... Well, there's a claim there's an attempted military coup from officers within the um, Islamic Party and the National Congress Party to yeah. long-standing um, opponents. Well, within the structure of the ruling elite over the last 30 years is has meant that certain elements of those those traditional parties have had some some presence within the ruling elite, but uh, um, not really part of the, the clique. Because um, Omar Bashir, who was deposed recently, was a member of the Islamist Party when he came to power in 1989, but he also purged that um, group out of his ruling elite in 2000. He left some elements within it. Um, to retain his own power. And it's, yeah, so there was a sort of a coalition of ruling elites that represented different parties um, to some extent, but they didn't really have much say. Well, you know, they, they haven't disappeared, and they've tried to 
wrestle power from the ruling elite this week, and that's led to a real crackdown. Now, my sense is only a few days ago. My sense is that the government, uh, you know, the, that clique that's entrenched in power that's been holding on against the protesters for for months now, um, will use this as an opportunity to, to to really clamp down. And so, whatever progress has been made in the last two or three weeks. Um, towards some sort of uh, solution or resolution to the crisis, I think, maybe wound back. All right, you know, so the people say, in the street uh, won't get what they're after. Yeah, I think that's, you know, I, I've said all along that um, whatever outcome will be, it's either going to be a prolonged conflict um, and the ruling elite will crumble, um, because at the moment they're showing, the, they're showing all signs of remaining quite um, coherent and, supporting of each other. But what we're seeing in the Arab Spring is the only governments that have fallen, uh, we only really saw Libya, um, really, um, the only governments that have fallen um, have been when the ruling elite has fractured. Ah, yes. uh, we saw an element of that in Syria, but the inner clique stayed very close and they were able to weather the storm. Of course, with external support from Iran and Russia. But nonetheless, the in Syria, that sort of Shiite um, um, group stayed um, sort of uh, coherent, and that kept the government together. In Libya, it fractured altogether. Um, the ruling elite uh, ended up in three different um, factions, and that led to the fall of um, the whole Gaddafi edifice. Yeah, and they were sort of like clan groups, weren't they? Yeah, that's right, yeah. So, and that's landed in a protracted civil war with what looks like the Gaddafis, maybe the sort of elements of the Gaddafi regime that had um, that stayed loyal to him may end up ruling the country again at some point. We don't yeah. know because it's, it's really uncertain. But in countries like Tunisia and um, Egypt, they really, the ruling elite just sacrificed the head of state. And, um, uh, and then business as usual. Yeah, and then just went on with it. I mean, Tunisia was a little different because the the military weren't necessarily part of that um, inner circle. Uh, but in Egypt, I mean, as everyone says, the people who were in power when Mubarak were in power back in power again. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And the whole business about uh, the army in Egypt and and how that uh, the elite in the army owns huge amounts of the economy. Yeah, absolutely. And Sudan's the same. It's the thing that I think uh, we're seeing in relation to all these uh, coup, um, revolutions over the last 10 years in the Arab world and elsewhere, I think, to some extent, is that if the military stays together, then... Um, the, the prospects for change are very minimal. Yeah, right. So they'll yeah. use that to oppress the uh, uh, community insurrection that's going on. Yeah. 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 And a lot of, a lot of the, um, scholars that worked on sort of African and Middle Eastern and other states like this have said that a lot of, uh, you know, it's not surprising because during the colonial period, the only institution that was really built up and had sort of institutional um, solid solidity was the military. Yeah, right. Um, and, you know, you, you, you know, a lot of the um, military leaders were trained overseas, you know, they were quite empowered. The military was strong, 
uh, and so when and, and developed well. So when the state collapses, that's the only institution that can stand together. Um, so. Uh, it's a bit eerie because uh, the amount of building up of the military and the police powers in Australia, um, it's all got echoes of exactly the same kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, it does. I mean, you know, we can see that. Uh, you know, we sort of start this conversation uh, around Japan and its non-military culture. But, I mean, you know, the sort of um, uh, growth and the sort of, um, uh, what would you call it, the sort of, uh, way that the military is being embedded into everything that we do now is really quite, uh, for me, quite disturbing. Yeah. Um, well, you know, the, um, I don't see that stopping, largely because the economic interests in military production, military hardware, and um, surveillance and security has now become such a major industry in most parts of the world uh, that these people fund a lot of... Um, Sort of uh, government, uh, political lobbying and, and advertising, and a whole range of things. That, uh, you know, we're seeing a shift from, I think, uh, in terms of um, the, the sort of commanding heights of uh, the economy that um, bringing the military and security industry right into the centre of it. So, yeah, you know, and uh, the endless propaganda that uh, backs up that uh, uh, world. Yeah, that world view. Absolutely. I mean, you know, as a number of people have pointed out, that it's no surprise that our um, sort of, uh, what do you call it, our our fear, the fear campaigns around asylum seekers and the growth of the uh, security industry um, because they're connected. We can see how they, um, as one expands, the other becomes deeper in our psyche. yeah, it's a bit yeah. like the marshmallow man in um, uh, Ghostbusters, <laughs> you know, the enormous ghost, uh, marshmallow man that is made up of nothing but blancmange, but uh, everybody yeah. thinks it's a fearsome thing. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, you know, this is the thing, that, that those societies in some way, you know, those societies where the military is at the core of, you know, um, control of the state, um, you know, that should be a warning to us about how much... Uh, we invest and how much we invest both um, culturally but also and, and economically in the military. So over the next uh, week or so, we should be seeing uh, how things are going to turn in the Sudan, really? Yes, well, yeah, and hopefully the um, the protesters are able to continue to yeah. um, hold the government to account. I mean, one of the things that we have to remember is that you know, 20 years ago when these protests occurred, even 10 years ago, the, the military just came and actually, you know, really um, sort of put its foot down and murdered them home because of the fear yeah. um, that they'd be killed. Now, the, the military doesn't, you know, the protests have withstood that, they've demonstrated now that that sort of um, grip response from the military just leads to all people on the street. Yeah, yeah, so, the, the grip isn't as tight as it was before. Yeah, and also the international, you know, to be, to be you know, sort of, uh, I don't know, um, to put it into perspective, the international um, coverage of this means that the military doesn't have the same capacity to kill people, arrest them, detain them, torture them, that it did, it had for years and years. Um, 
Mm. So that's on the positive side. There is a sense that the sort of um, that the government can't repeat the level of um, sort of repression that it had in the past. Now that's not to say it's not being repressive. It's just that I think there is uh, some awareness amongst the ruling elite that they have to be a little bit judicious about how much power, how much force they use. We have to finish that. We have to finish it there. We had the dropout and all the rest of it. We'll have to find out more about this at another time. And next time we speak, we'll follow this up. Great, thank you. It's been a pleasure again, Annie, as always. Thank you. Uh, We we really literally have to go, Marcus. It's been a good show. Yeah, thanks, Annie, and thanks, listeners. And yeah, we'll catch you next week at the same time. Yeah, and coming up next is uh, Asia Pacific Currents. Did you enjoy listening to that podcast? Here at 3CR, we're a community radio station, and you're part of that. Right now is Radiothon, when we ask our community to pitch in with a few dollars that can help keep media in the hands of our community. This year, we need to raise $250,000 to keep the station on air. Any amount that you can afford makes a big difference. And it's really easy to donate. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Your support is greatly appreciated and helps us power radical podcasts for yet another year. Thanks, as always, for listening.